appended on a desert island and raised by animals. He would go on to discover the greatest philosophical and religious truths known to man. So wise did he become that he went back to society to try and teach them what he had learned. Or so goes the story of Hai ibn Yaqzan, one of the most influential Arabic writings of the medieval period. It would influence everything from Tarzan to Robinson Crusoe to the Jungle Book. So today on the Golden Age of Islam, we're going to continue to talk about this very important and influential book that reflects much of medieval Islamic philosophy. This is part two of our study of Ibn Tufail's philosophical novel, Hai Ibn Yaqzan. So please stay with us. this episode of the Golden Age of Islam. Before we go on, I want to thank you all for your very kind comments and your very kind emails and posts on Facebook. Thank you very much for these. These are very useful and help us with the show. Now, as we're recording this, we are living under the lockdown and social distancing of the coronavirus. You may be listening to this years after that. I don't know. Some of the great suggestions we've received from email include discussing how Islamic doctors and scientists dealt with this issue of pandemic and disease. And while we don't have an episode on that ready to go, I would just point out at this point that actually an interesting factoid, during the Black Plague of the 1300s, which ravaged Europe, probably the, the worst disaster to hit humanity ever, really. Uh, actually, Muslim doctors in Al-Andalus in Spain, who had proposed to Europe that quarantining and particularly burning the clothes and artifacts of people who were infected could stop the spread of disease because it was spread from person to person by vectors, by small animals and insects. Uh, actually, when they spread this information to Europe, the Pope uh, basically put a death sentence on their head for suggesting this because in Europe... The plague was a judgment of God, and for any human to try and influence or stop or somehow interfere with the judgment of God was blasphemous. And so, actually, they had a death sentence placed upon them. And this, again, just goes to show the differences in cultural outlook and uh, the relationship of religion and science in those different cultures at that time. So... That's one bit. Uh, we don't have a whole episode on that to go, but just something that's very topical. In any case, in this episode, we are going to continue and we're going to finish looking at the great philosophical novel that we introduced last time, Hai Ibn Yaqdan. And that does touch on this subject, the relationship of science and reason, rationalism, 
and religion, as we talked a little bit about. Now we're going to get to the second half of the novel, which is really where our main character is going to discover all the metaphysical stuff. If you remember the story, he has been deposited on a uninhabited island and spent the first part of his life uh, learning basically every science there is to learn and he dedicates the second half of his life to learning everything about philosophy and religion and that's the part we're in now. So just to recap this novel, Hay ibn Yaqdan, which is the name of the main character but the name is I mean obviously a, a play on words here. Hay uh, meaning the one who lives and Ibn Yaqdan, um, the son of wakefulness, meaning this is a person who's woken up and found the truth. It was written in the 12th century by the Andalusian philosopher Ibn Tufail. And we talked about him and his role. Uh, basically, he was reacting to several different ideas out there, uh, particularly the idea of ritualism and very strict legalism in religion. Now, so far, he seems like he's tearing that down, but uh, there's a, a little twist to this novel. As we've noticed, it's not much of a novel in the sense of, uh, you know, John Grisham or Tom Clancy or something like that, but it does have a little bit of a twist at the end, so uh, we don't little uh, spoiler alert there. Okay, so where are we? Um, Hai, if you remember, has been deposited on an island. He's either spontaneously generated or was, I mean, dropped there as an infant. Uh, and the the author gave these two possible explanations because of different views of science. Okay, but what we learned in the first part of his life, and remember, his life is divided into seven-year segments. And this is obviously just a device for the author to show what he considers to be the phases of human knowledge. So he's been through four of these. He was 28 years old when we left him off, and um, he's learned how to survive first. He's learned how to differentiate himself from the animals. He's realized he's different than all of them. And then he's learned how to build tools, and he goes from being the weakest, most vulnerable animal on the island to basically being the dominant figure. Uh, not only are all the other animals afraid of him, but he domesticates them and everything else. So basically that first part is about how he uh, manages the material aspects of life. Really the more important part of this, and, and that was all just build up. Right, that's where the author is talking about how the brain works. And now he's going to talk about how the brain uh, figures out spiritual things. But ironically, it's that first part, the basic stuff, that has probably been the most influential. So like we said, uh, this book is either directly acknowledged to um, influence some European classics or is thought to have. So uh, Tarzan, which is okay, an American book, what, the Jungle Book, Robinson Crusoe, and so forth. But they're, again, talking about the basics, the idea of this guy surviving on an island. It's really the philosophical stuff that he gets to now, in the second part of his life, that is really the, the reason that the author is um, writing this. And as we said, uh, 
This should not be taken too literal as a story. It's basically an allegory, an analogy, where high, this character, represents the development of the human intellect. So Ibn, Ibn Tufail is not really saying that one person could figure all this out um, on their own. Okay, so anyway, um, philosophically, Ibn Tufail here is basically a rationalist in the line of great rationalists like Ibn Sina and his own protege, who's going to basically um, be the, the virtual successor of Ibn Sina, that's the Andalusian Ibn Rushdi. And these are people who say that there's no conflict between logic and science on one hand and religion and philosophy on the other. They're saying that they can work together well. And they're responding directly to people, particularly Al-Ghazali, who say that, no, these things are separate. Yeah, science is great. It's wonderful. We even study science. Um, but you keep that part separate from the religion, the spiritual side, and they can't conflict. And if for some reason they do conflict, um, then, of, of course, the religion and spiritual side has to take uh, precedence. And we see this same attitude even today with a lot of people who will, you know, say that science is okay, uh, but until it conflicts with religion. So, like, in some cases, the part of the natural history museum that deals with evolution is separate and it has warnings because there are some people who say that the well the rest of that stuff is okay but that that part goes against the bible so you know we can't accept it uh, Ibn Tufail is one of those who say absolutely not if you think that's the case then you're you're just doing something wrong Okay, so he wants to uh, reconcile these two positions. And this has a lot to do with the political situation that he's living in. I mean, doesn't it always? It always affects what you write. So Spain and Morocco at this time are ruled by the El Mawahid dynasty. Now, if you see this in English, it's usually written as El Mohad. Um, it's kind of a bad transliteration, but it actually means El Mawahid. And Wahid, of course, in Arabic means one. Muwahid is um, that measure means making one. So the El Mawahids are the ones who believe in this oneness. And specifically, what that's talking about when, whenever that comes up in Islam, meaning the, the oneness of God. Okay. Um, so. They are, in a sense, they're usually written as being religious purists, okay? and that's their, um, they are sort of a corrective to the dynasty that came before them, okay? uh, the Almoravids. Okay? And so this is the, the world that Ibn Tufail works in. Now, he worked for both dynasties, so he was able to um, deal with both, but the reason he was is because, um, and this is a, a gross oversimplification of the situation, but the, the Al-Mawahids, although they believe very strongly in strict application of the law, um, you know, very strict rules for the public, that's, I mean, was sort of the hallmark of their kind of rule, the philosophers, the scientists, they got some slack. And so they saw that there was a difference here, a distinction between the elite 
who can learn higher truths for themselves and the masses who need to follow orders. And um, you kind of see a parallel to this in medieval Europe, in Catholic Europe, the idea that the elite, even elite priests, I mean, they could be skeptical about certain things and they could read certain forbidden truths because they could handle them. But the masses, I mean, the masses just had to be given the facts. I mean, you, you give them, this is the rules, do this, don't do that. This is what you have to believe. Uh, repeat after me and that's it. And that, I mean, that attitude, I mean, of course, we see this throughout history even today. But this was definitely the... Um, the rule in this the civilization he's writing in and so uh, Ibn Tufayl has to to work that he of course sees himself as one of the elite his character Hay Ibn Yaqvan is the example the archetype of one of those elite people who can you know can be allowed to reason for themselves um, who has this great intellect and so you put him on a desert island and he's going to come up with all the theories of Plato and Aristotle and Euclid. He's going to come up with all of that on his own because he's got one of these great minds. And of course, Ibn Tufayl considers himself to be one of these great minds and so forth. But there is a difference between them and the masses. And that's what the, the twist I mentioned at the end of this book is going to address. Okay, so that's where we are. So we have this situation. Uh, now we have this guy with this elite mind is going to put it to use and come up with these elite truths, so to speak. Okay, so as I said, uh, his life is divided into seven, seven-year periods. So by the time he hits 50 years old, he's basically learned everything. Now, of course, remember, he has no language. He doesn't need a language, and he's never developed one. So the idea is he's learning this without words. And this is very deliberate. I mean, the author could have made him invent a language. I mean, he invents everything else, right? He could have invented a language. But the idea is he's learning deep truths that go beyond words. And in fact, words are limiting. They can only come so far. And uh, Ibn Tufayl says this very clearly in the book uh, at several points. You know, he says, you have to understand that I am, I'm writing this in words and I can only get so close to the ideas that Ibn Tufayl, uh, that Hai, excuse me, develops. Okay, so that's one thing. Okay, so when we last left him, he was entering period five, which is where he turns strictly to the metaphysical stuff. So obviously the first thing he has to discover is the existence of God. And here we really see the rationalist angle. Um, because according to what someone like Al-Ghazali or a traditionalist may have said, well, you're, you're going to discover the existence of God through some revelation. So God would speak to him, right, or send a message. But remember, uh, these are rationalists. Ibn Tufayl is a rationalist. And so basically, High has to figure out God. He's going to figure out by observation and experimentation that God exists. And this is their claim that you can do this. You know, anyone, if you're smart and you're just paying attention, then you should be able to do this. And this is a controversial point because 
someone like Al-Ghazali would say, no, this is why we have prophets, um, why we have messages. Now, you may have heard this argument before. In fact, I can remember being taught this in Sunday school and so forth. I mean, because one of the big questions in religion is, you know, what about these people like the lost tribes of the Amazon or people living on a remote island who haven't heard about our particular religion, right? They haven't received the Quran. Well, what's going to happen to them? You know, if they're going to be punished for not worshiping God, what about those who haven't, you know, had missionaries come tell them? And this, this is obviously one of the big, big objections, one of the first objections that always comes up. The at least the traditional explanation, or the one I always learned, is a little bit different than what's going to happen with Hai Ibn Yaqdan here. So what we were always taught is that even people who have never heard of the scripture, even if you have never seen a Bible or heard of it or never seen the Quran, you should still be able to look around you and conclude that God must exist. And the way we were always taught that you would look at nature and you would see that it was so amazing and you would conclude that, wow, this is, you know, sublime and then you'd believe in God. Like you look at a rainbow and wow, there you go. There must be something divine that made this rainbow. That's not exactly what happens to Ibn Tufail um, because... Uh, here, he doesn't want to have overwhelming emotional experience, right? That's kind of like a revelation. We need logic. So we're going to have, he's going to have to make logical conclusions that are going to lead him to the same discovery. And so this part of the book starts to get really complex, and it's kind of hard to summarize very well. But he's going to ask several questions that are going to lead him to God. So the first thing he's going to contemplate is whether there is such a thing as infinity or not. And he's actually, when he does this, he looks out into space. And he's trying to figure if space goes on forever or does, is, is there a limit to space? I mean, if you've ever looked out into space, you may wonder, you know, does, does it go on forever? How can it go on forever? So what he comes up with on his own, supposedly, is a classic proof that is used for this. And this is... I mean, say you took two lines, and so he does this. He starts with one line that starts right in front of him, and the other one starts a little further away. So he starts like at the moon. So one line starts right on Earth where he's at. The other line starts at the moon. They're parallel lines, and they both go on for infinity. Well, which one would be longer? Now, we have to remember, this is a guy who has no language, by the way. So exactly how, I, I don't honestly think you could come up with this without language, but supposedly he does. Well, what he concludes is what, you know, what was always concluded, is that there is no way to answer this question. And this is because both lines are infinite. What's bigger than infinite? There's no such thing. Infinite is the biggest number possible. So both these lines are infinite. So in that sense, they're both equal. What are they equal? They're both equal infinity. But we know one of them is longer than the other one because it starts further back, right? So logic tells you that one of these lines is longer, but then the definition of infinity tells you that they're not. So he concludes that no material thing can be infinite because it's illogical and everything, you know, is logical. And so in this case... Um, and the lines are material because they have the dimension of length. It's a measurement of length. 
Okay, now, we don't want you to get messed up on this. This isn't a Zen Cohen or something. So in case you wonder about this question, um, it, it doesn't really prove that space is not infinite because like a lot of philosophical dilemmas, uh, the, the problem here is, even though he has no language, the problem is with language. Uh, there's several different definitions of what infinity means, and he's mixing up two of them. I mean, one definition is something that starts at a point and goes on forever. The other definition is something that goes in both directions. He's mixing up both of these, and, and this is why he can't answer the question. But anyway, the point is the conclusion that... Uh, high comes up with does match with logic of the day. Okay, so the next thing that he concludes is that everything has to have a creator to set it in motion. Uh, and and he, his determination is that everything is in motion and something has, you can't just be in motion, something has to set you in motion and there's something that started it all. Okay, I mean, if if something set this in motion, then what set that in motion, then what set that thing in motion, and so forth. Uh, this, by the way, is, is classic Aristotle uh, that he's coming up with here. So the, the question is, and this is the classic, like, who created everything? Then who created the creator? And who created the creator of the creator? And basically what you come up with is that with that logic, it goes on forever. Remember, he has a problem with infinity. He's, he's concluding that a material, material things cannot be infinite for the reasons we just said. Um, and so this would be an infinite regression, right, or an infinite series. If we say everything has a creator, then the creator must have a creator, then the creator of that must have a creator. It would go on forever, but it can't go on forever, right? So there must be a creator who put all this stuff in motion. Aristotle called this the prime mover, the first thing that starts everything else moving. Okay. Now, of course, we know you can't have something come out of nothing. So by that logic, you would go on back and back and back and back and back forever. And so his conclusion to this, now this is pretty impressive for a guy just on a desert island looking at stars, but he does conclude what basically um, every philosopher of his, day, or of, of his school concluded, and that was that the creator must not be material. Because for material things, something has to cause something else, right? Everything has to have a cause, and you end up going on forever. Since we know that's not possible, the first creator, this prime mover, must not be material. Okay, now th this, is, this is the logic of the day, and this is what he comes up with. Um, obviously, today modern science and, and theories of the Big Bang and so forth go against this, but this is what he comes up. So his conclusion is that the, the ultimate creator, whatever put everything in motion at first, must not be material. In fact, it has to be beyond the limits of material things because we've shown that infinity is not possible for material things. It has to be beyond the limits of time. Right? How you know? 
when did this creator come into existence? Well, it's beyond time. And this is the classic argument for the existence of a transcendent creator. And this is pretty much the same argument used by intelligent design today. Now, of course, someone like uh, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens out there would, would argue against this argument. In fact, they do. They spent much of their lives debunking it, saying it's basically illogical because you're saying that everything has to have a creator, um, but the creator doesn't have to have a creator. So you're making a rule and then violating your own rule. But the point here is that Ibn Tufail is not trying to argue against atheists. He's arguing against religious traditionalists. Okay, And what he's saying is that this can all be figured out through logic. So Hai ibn Yaqvan develops his own version of logic just by looking at things around him and then applies this to the question of creation. It's a natural question. You know, how did I get here? Uh, you know, where did things come from? And that logically he concludes that there must be a transcendent creator, which is, of course, God. Now, traditionalists would say, you know, that argument is weak. Um, most people wouldn't come up with it. The reason we know God exists is because God sends a prophet. God does miracles. Uh, these, God gave us these proofs because it's not something you just come up with based on pure logic. Hai has figured out that God exists. So the next thing he's going to discover that God is infinitely good and merciful, because this is right the other key point of religion. Now, if you thought the last proof uh, we just gave you was a little bit of a stretch logically, then this one is really going to strain your imagination. But it, it is in keeping with what the rationalist would say. So, um, and Actually, it's used in both Christianity and Islam. But anyway, um, so Hay notices that animals and plants have all these great gifts that enable them to survive. Now, granted, he's on this really nice island, okay, which is flowing with all these wonderful things. It's in a perfect climate zone and everything. Um, so there's a lot of nice stuff to see. So he's going to say, where would they get these gifts? Of course, you get everything from the creator. He's figured out that there's a creator for everything. So, um, you know, why is it that birds have these lovely wings to fly? Well, it came from the creator. So, you know, these good things help them to survive. Otherwise, they would starve, right? So where do they get them? From the creator. So the creator must be good because he's giving good things. Now, if the creator is transcendent, as we've said, beyond the limits of, of mater material things, so if he's giving good things, then he must be beyond the limits of what we can conceive of good, so he's infinitely good. Okay, well, then you ask, what about the bad stuff, right? That comes from someplace too. Now, here he's going to use logic. Um, but to, to cut some slack, 
and we, we have to cut them some slack here, this is probably the hardest question for any religion to ever answer, and um, really the best answers that anyone's have comes up with have been fairly um, fairly weak logically. You know, if if God is infinitely good, and God is responsible for all the good things in the world, then what about the bad stuff? Right. So he, he's going to come up with a conclusion that's really not worse than anybody else has. Um, so here, uh, his logic in this case, and this is this is very classical um, theological logic here, is that for the creator to be infinite and to have power over everything, that creator must be perfect. Now, we should know here, it's not so much true in English, but in Arabic and a lot of other languages, the word perfect basically means complete. Perfect and complete mean the same thing. Um, it's definitely true in Hebrew and in, in the Bible and so forth. In English, not, not so much. We, perfect means something slightly different. You can be complete and not be perfect. So, in this sense, they mean that this, this creator has to be complete because he has power over everything complete means perfect so he's perfect the creator is perfect okay great well things like disease and loss and weakness bad stuff these are a lack of perfection how could a perfect creator have a lack of perfection can't therefore they don't come from him Right? And remember, again, he's saying that the world we live in is a shadow. It's, it's an earthly thing. It's not the perfect version. And this was very much Platonic logic. Uh, that's what High discovered. Okay, so in fairness, I mean, this is the same dilemma that every religion has had to deal with. Um, and, and so they say, well, the bad stuff can't come from God because God's perfect. Yeah, but God's also all-powerful, so why is he allowing bad stuff? Well, traditionally, religions have had to introduce an evil character, whether it's Satan or Loki, all right, or it's the original sin in the Bible. So there has to be some bad guy who rebels. And basically, every, every mythology, every religion has this, this bad guy. But of course, Hai doesn't have that on his island. He's the only human around, right? I mean, he can't blame this on a snake or something. So this is where we get this kind of weak logical explanation that he uses. Um, and so his critics w would fire back, you know, um, well, if God is perfect and he creates stuff, then why is that stuff imperfect, right? Um, I mean, we're saying that this world is a shadow, that it's not perfect, but God created this world, so why isn't that perfect? Okay, well, uh, again, High doesn't have this bad guy character to blame it on. So, like, the argument in, in the Bible, in Christianity, is very simple. Well, I mean, God created everything absolutely perfect, um, but Satan rebelled for some reason. How he was able to do this, um, you know, is kind of a question and then he convinced the humans to rebel and then from them all the bad stuff happens well high doesn't have that um so he's basically going to use this logical argument that well bad stuff just can't come from a perfect creator and the creator has to be perfect 
So this is the rationalist argument. Now remember, of course, um, the traditionalists, the non-rationalists, they're not going to try to use this logic to explain it. I mean, they're just going to say this is the way it is. Right? I mean, that this is it, it is because uh, I mean this is the way the world is that people rebelled and so forth. Okay. So anyway, this is his argument to try and come up with why God is infinitely good and perfect. And like I say. Uh, it's it's a somewhat weak argument, and again, um, you know, spoiler alert: the rationalist position basically ends up losing out in the long run. The idea that you can explain all of theology by pure reason—that you know, quote a a baby could be dropped on a desert island and figure out all the truths in the Quran based on logic. Um, that argument basically is going to lose out in the idea that, yeah, I mean, there are spiritual truths we only know because God revealed them to us through the prophets and other messages is going to win out. But that's what Ibn Tufayl is fighting about. Anyway, this is, you know, one of the weak points of his argument. Um, so I mean, some of the other stuff in there is still uh, pretty interesting. Okay, so anyway... Um, having established those two basic truths, that there is a creator and that the creator is perfect and infinitely good, High is going to decide that he wants to spend the rest of his life focusing on this creator, essentially worshiping him. Well, that makes sense, right? Okay, uh, and so now we get to how he comes up with the rest of his theology. So Hai is going to divide the world into three levels. And this is very important for the rest of the book. There's the earthly stuff, right? All the material things, uh, which we know they are, they're the most, um, there's the most problems with them. They are the most imperfect, as we've seen. They have death and decay and all that. Then the next level is the stars. And these, he sees, are much better than what's on Earth. Okay, they're, they're full of light, and light is, uh, to him, the, the essence of life and energy. And so that's what they are. They're light, and so there's good. And then at the top, there's the Creator. And so these definitely get, get better. I mean, there's a hierarchy to them. Now, he does, by observation, conclude that he is the only creature that seems to be aware of the Creator. Exactly how he knows this is kind of fuzzy, uh, but in, in reality, we all believe the same thing, right? I mean, pretty much most people would say that humans are the only animals that think about um, God. Well, how do we know that? It just seems kind of logical to us, so he's, he's using the same logic that we have. Well... High notices that when he thinks about the Creator, he's filled with joy. Well, that makes sense, right? If the, the Creator is infinitely good and gives all these good gifts and good things, uh, then that, that makes you joyous. And he concludes he wants to stay in this state of joyousness forever. He would like to spend all his life just thinking about the Creator and being filled with joy. Okay, but... Obviously, you can't do that because you have basic physical needs. And so he knows that. So he concludes 
that he should spend the absolute minimum time and effort on the lowest level needs. Things like eating and drinking and sleeping and all these other physical needs that you have that we share with the animals. You should do the, the minimum and also the minimum amount of physical work. You have to do some, right? He has to live on this island. But you should spend the minimum amount of this. And so uh, he, he ends up coming up with, uh, I mean, he ends up sound, sounding like the Dalai Lama or, or something here, coming up with this idea of moderation. He's going to eat in moderation. He's going to drink. I mean, he drinks water. Uh, you got to drink in very in moderation. Sleep just as much as he has to. Not indulge himself um, because he wants to spend his time on the higher level things. Okay. So that's basically what he learns about the first level. You should do just the just the minimum amount you have to. Okay. Well, then he's going to contemplate the second level. These are the stars. Well, how you know what can he learn from them? Well, he he concludes that they are pure light, that they are perfect, they have no blemish, that they shine, and they help all living creatures by providing light. He has figured that out. So if he's going to imitate the stars, first of all, it means he has to have immaculate hygiene which the book describes in very great detail of, of how he actually cleans all parts of himself on this desert island. Um, but why? Because he, he's looking at these stars which are pure and clean, at least as he sees them, pure light, right? pure bright light. And so that's what he wants to be like. Well, you see what he's doing here. He is using pure logic to basically come up with the emphasis that Islam places on cleanliness and the rules that Islam has about cleanliness. I mean, there are a lot of rules um, about, you know, what is clean and what's permitted. Well, he doesn't have anyone to give him those rules. He's got to figure them out on his own, and this is how he does it. Now... So, next, he's going to realize... Um, that the sun, right, which gives light to all living things, uh, he has a responsibility to do the same, to help all living, living things as much as he can. And so he spends much of his time going around basically helping any animals or plants that he sees in any kind of distress. He sees an injured animal, um, you know, if he sees a plant that's fallen over, he fixes it, okay? And, and so this is, again, he's learning about good works, learning to be good and kind and charitable, even to those who can't repay him, even to those who don't understand why he's doing it. He's coming up with that on his own. But he's still got that darn earthly nature, right? That level one nature. He cannot be totally pure because he still has to eat. Uh, and so um, he, he understands that, but he realizes he has to balance these. So he's only going to eat stuff that causes the least amount of suffering. So he doesn't want to eat animals because you have to kill the animals, which he's been doing up, up until this point. Well, he doesn't want to do that anymore. Okay, so he doesn't do that. Um, he can eat plants 
but he doesn't want to destroy the plant. So he only eats the ripe fruits and vegetables when they're ready to fall off. This way, it doesn't injure the plant. And this way, he's doing the least amount of damage. Now, it's interesting. He's, he's basically going to become like a vegan. Um, and he's going to spend most of his day meditating. He does all this stuff so he can spend the, the, uh, the rest of his day meditating. So he's going to end up coming out sounding like, you know, you know, like, a, like a Zen master or, or a guru or something like that. Um, he doesn't sound like what we think of as a strict Muslim. But again, remember what Ibn Tufail is writing. He's writing for this higher level spiritual practice. This is for the what the elite can do. Uh, in the society he's living, this is not what the masses uh, do. The masses get rules. They get told, do this, don't. This is permitted, this is not. Okay, they get limits. You can have this much, but no more. He's on this higher level plane. Um, so he's very much like a Sufi or a Zen monk or a Hindu guru. And the reason they sound all alike is because in, in any of those, in any of those disciplines, when you get to the highest level, right, we believe that everybody's finding the same spiritual truths. Um, so this is what he's doing. Now, now he's, of course, validating the Islamic view of this, but they end up being very similar. Okay. All right, so as it turns out, High notices that he can spend days in meditation without stopping for sleep or food, or uh, he doesn't mention this, but I would assume potty breaks go in there uh, because he stays in this spirit of meditation for days and days. Now, uh, any of you out there who've ever tried to do a meditation practice, try to do it daily, it's tough to do 30 minutes, right? You imagine, okay, what, oh, oh my gosh, here's a guy go, you know, three, four days without stop um, in meditation. And I mean, he's not, you know, he's not taking any, you know, narcotics or anything like this. But I mean, this, this is what he does. He has developed this higher level ability. Now, what he notices, though, is when he goes into these deep, deep states of meditation, his awareness of the self goes away. Now, this means he experiences nothing but the creator. But as you know, the, the idea of the elimination of the self is, I mean, this is classic Zen. Uh, this is classic Vipassana uh, meditation. It's, uh, this is found in Christian meditation as well. This similar at, at the higher levels of all these spiritual practices, the idea of the self goes away. Now, if you're practicing Zen, for example, the self goes away and you realize that the totality of all being, the whole universe of everything is one. This is what you focus on. In the monotheistic religion like Christianity or Islam, you become totally focused in God. But at, at, at the levels that these folks are getting, remember his version of, of God is not coming from a scripture, coming from a book. It's this idea of this transcendent, all-powerful being. It starts to be very similar to what a, a Zen master is experiencing is the oneness of the universe and so on. 
Okay. Anyway, uh, he's going to discover even more higher spiritual truths that that sound, I mean, very Zen-like. So, for example, he spends a lot of time pondering whether things are one or multiple. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent time thinking about this. Um, again, you know the mass, the the rest of us apparently we're we're in the masses because we don't think about this. But uh, enlightened people like him do. And so, what he's thinking about here is this idea that you know is everything individual or is it you know part of a type? So, for example, there are lots of trees on the island, but they all share basic properties of trees. Okay, so in a sense, they're all individual trees because no two of them are exactly alike, but they're all kind of the same thing. We can talk about a generic tree, and he does, even though he has no language, he has the idea. Then you can go to all living things. They're different. I mean, a tree is not like a, a mouse, but they have things in common. Then you can go to all material things. They have certain things in common. Then even on all non-material things. And he goes back and forth. So are they are they all one? Is everything the same stuff? Or is it everything individual? Well, he goes back and forth on this question, which of course is one of the big philosophical controversies of his day. And he doesn't come down on one side or the other. What he says is reality is bigger than that. Everything is both. right? Everything is one. Everything is part of one existence. But everything is also individual. Every tree is an individual expression of a tree. An individual tree there with some differences. But they're all part of the same basically family of trees. So everything is both. We have both in our nature. Okay? Right. So in doing this, Hai is going to realize that he is one with everything. So he's going to look out in the universe. At night he's going to look out at the stars and realize they're they're not just separate from them from him, but he's part of this whole universe. And this, again, is one of the big types of uh, meditation. This is one of the big goals, right? You know, there's the old joke about the Zen master saying to the hot dog guy, make me one with everything, right? And so this is what he does. But he does it all on his, on his own. Now, he goes even further. Now, as he studies the stars and the planets, um, he's going to notice that they move in a circular motion, which is at least is what it looks like to him. Now this is pretty good. He's not. He doesn't have an observatory um, or, or you know, or you know, a telescope or anything like this. He's able to just lay on the ground and look up in the sky and tell you that the stars are moving in a circular orbit, which is, I mean, that's some serious dedication. And so he says it's you know circles must be perfect. Okay, great. And then he realizes when he spins around in a circle, because again, he wants to imitate the stars. So he's going to spin around in a circle really fast, that the distractions of the world drop away, they become a blur, and he can focus on the creator a lot better. 
Now, this is definitely an endorsement of the Sufi practice of spinning in circles, uh, which is used in a lot of like the whirling dervishes do this. If you watch a lot of Sufi rituals, it involves moving in circles. And so he's, he's definitely validating this. first two levels of development. This is number one, understanding his material self, uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, it's dirty, but he's going to try and tame it and control it as best as he can. Um, he's imitating the stars in various ways by being immaculate, by helping others, and by circles, turning in circles. But now he's got to focus on level three, which is the creator. And his goal is to imitate the Creator, uh, but of course he still has his earthly nature. So he knows he's never going to get there completely, but this is his goal, to become as godlike as he can. Now this is where the story starts to take a little bit of a turn. Um, because up to this point, everything has been logic. He's been able to look at this, you know, look at the stars and say, well, X, Y, Z, blah, 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 and therefore conclude God is good. Where he gets to this level, things are going to get beyond the point where you can um, figure them out just by pure logic. And so when he meditates and he experiences God, right, experiences the Creator, he starts to get all kinds of visions. And these are things that come to him that he, he could not figure out on his own. Um, and this is where he's going to get all the rest of the religion. So all the stuff that he hasn't figured out just by logic, um, you, you know, there's some things you wonder, well, how could he possibly come up with this? Well, this is where he's going to get all the rest of it, because now he's getting visions directly from God. So, for example, he has the vision of heaven and hell. He sees heaven and hell. He sees how good and bad they are, respectively. Okay, that wasn't going to come to him naturally. Now, this, of course, is where Ibn Tufayl is reconciling with Al-Ghazali, uh, right, and going beyond the pure rationalist. Because Al-Ghazali was, I mean, the big advocate of Sufism and his tenet that there are some things, there are some truths we can only ga uh, grasp through mystical experience. Um, the idea that there are spiritual things that you cannot get from logic. Uh, and that's what we're getting here. And so Ibn, even Hai Ibn Yaqdan, even though he's used logic and experimentation and observation so far, now he's starting to get basically messages and visions directly from God. But we have to remember he spent 40 years of rational preparation to get to this point. He has, I mean, he's come to all this logically. He's purified himself, figured out he has to do this logically. And by meditating, now he's starting to get this. Okay, so now some of the really hardcore rationalists, uh, particularly um, 
Ibn Tufail's own mentor, uh, Ibn Bajah, is one who wouldn't concede this much. I mean, they would want to say everything can be figured out through reason. But Ibn Tufail kind of has to reconcile these two positions. Uh, Ghazali is the official doctrine in the El Mawahid state he lives in, so he has to say that there's some place for this. But what we have to see is like he's pushing really hard to say, okay, yeah, if you do pure rationalism for 40 years, then you can go do the spiritual stuff. Wow, I mean, that that's pretty intense. Uh, I mean, his complaint with the world he lives in is that most people are not practicing any kind of rationalism at all. So that would be really good. Okay. But anyway, uh, through this, he's, he's going to come up with all the rest of the religious truths you could want, and it's wonderful. Now, as I said, the novel is going to take an unexpected turn. And, and this is a part that sounds very much like it was added on to the novel. Okay, so, so far, I mean, we have got this Hai uh, ibn Yaqdan who has learned everything on his own and has just mastered all the knowledge you could want. Now we find out that there is another island nearby, which has at least enough people on it that it has a kingdom. Okay, so it's an inhabited island. Oddly enough, no one from this island has uh, come to High Ibn Yaqthan's island, although they know it exists. Now remember, this is, this is an, an allegory, okay? It's not meant to be a realistic story. And we get the story of two people who live there, good friends, and their names are Absal and Salaman. And these two characters come from another book by Ibn Sina, which is named after them, although the book they come from is not really much like what happens in this story. But it's a, it's a tribute to Ibn Sina again, as is Hai Ibn Yaqdan. That name is taken from another book by Ibn Sina. Okay. So we know everybody in this story is an archetype, right? Hai is the philosopher. I mean, the absolute self-taught rational philosopher. So Absal and Salomon, they are both very religious guys, and they happen to practice Islam. Uh, it's not really said so in so many words, but it's made pretty pretty obvious that that's what they're doing. But they practice religion in different ways. So Absal is basically like a monk. He spends all day praying and denying himself and trying to experience direct communion with God. Okay, we might say he's like a really hardcore Sufi, uh, for example. Uh, Salomon is the by-the-book guy enforcing religious laws. Do this, don't do that, and so forth. Now, as much as they like each other, they realize, you know, they're like the odd couple, Felix and Oscar. Uh, they, they're really incompatible. So Absol needs to get away because he wants to have peace and solitude to do his thing, his meditating thing. Uh, so he goes to the island where High lives. Apparently, they know it's there, but no one has gone, come to visit him in all these years, in 50 years. Okay, so he goes there and he does his thing. And eventually he's going to meet up with Hai. Uh, they have a few encounters which are really kind of comical, but they realize they're both into the same thing. I mean, basically, right, they both spend all day meditating, trying to find God. Now, 
Uh, Hai, of course, doesn't have language, so Absol teaches him language in like a, a really, really short time. And, you know, this is just another thing he picks up really fast because, I mean, not only is it basic language, but I mean, they're having really high-level philosophical discussions. Okay, so that's wonderful. And, of, of course, Hai has reached this high level of, of meditation. So he teaches Absol, and Absol thinks this is great. I mean, he's, you know, he... He learns it and he says, hey, come back to my island and teach everybody this great stuff. And so remember, Absal is one of these people who has this sort of mindset that can do this thing. He can do this meditation and finding out truths for himself. So he is a very successful student and he wants everyone to learn it. Uh, Hai knows nothing about uh, the rest of the world. This is the only person he's ever encountered. So he says, yeah, great. I want to go there and teach everybody this. Okay, so you may think this is going to be a really happy ending. He goes to the island. He teaches them all to be wonderful people, and it becomes a utopia. Aha! And written by a different person in a different political condition, that might have been the way this story ended. But this is where Ibn Tufail has to make his big reconciliation. Now, whether he really believes this from the bottom of his heart or he's trying to remember who he works for, uh, who knows? Um, but he works for a government that strictly enforces the rules. They're very by the book. And this is uh, the, the time the, the Al Muahids are ruling is during the period that Spain is being lost to the Spanish conquests, and so they're they're in a fight. They're in a very direct fight with some really zealous Christian um, warriors, and so they're being very strict on their application and wanting everyone to be very strict in the application of Islam. But they also sponsor philosophers like Ibn Tufail and later Ibn Rushdi. Okay, so he's got to make this recon reconciliation. So he, he can't write a book that says, "Oh, by the way, what my government's doing is all wrong." Okay, so what happens is, unfortunately, Hai finds out that the citizens of this kingdom are not ready for his message. Uh, in fact, they're they're really bad. Uh, now, they, they follow the religion, but all they care about is the effect that it has on earth. Now, it does cause them to lead a better life on earth. It causes them to stop doing bad stuff and to be nice to other people. Okay, But when you expose them to this high-level stuff, basically the idea of getting your morals and values from yourself, from your own deliberations in your own decision versus being told in a school or getting them out of a book, they get really messed up. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that they, you know, it says that they're nice to him and they're polite to him, but he's really getting on everybody's nerves. So, I mean, they don't, they don't attack him in a mob, but basically um, they they make it known to Solomon, who by this time is the ruler of the kingdom, that hey, this guy's a pain in the pain in the, in the neck, okay, um, and that he should go back to his island. 
And he concludes, oh, he says, quote, they are no better than unreasoning animals. Now, he doesn't dislike them. He actually loves these people, but he realizes that this is, uh, I mean, whatever. This is like trying to explain, you know, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity to your dog, man. It just, you can't do it. Okay, so... He decides that the stuff in the law books and the stuff from the prophets, that's what they need. Right? You, it, and it's, it's kind of like with children. You need to tell them, children need to have rules, right? Don't, don't eat this. Don't eat um, candy all day long. You need to eat your vegetables. They don't know why, right? The vegetables are yucky. You just, you need to know. Just do it. That's what they need. That's how they need to be treated. Now, what he also learns, um, that uh, of course, he knows that God is beyond anything in the material world. And he's very upset when he first gets to the island, and they can't tell the difference between symbols and metaphors and the real thing. And this is a very definite uh, reference to controversies that were going on at the same time. Like, for example, the God in their books is clearly uh, seen to be anthropomorphic, right? Sits on a throne, has hands, has head, right? has a body, and so forth. High understands that these are just symbols, to represent this intangible thing, that God is not in the material world. But he sees these people, they don't understand the difference between a symbol and a reality. So they think, yeah, God has hands. God has exactly two hands, because the book says he has two hands, and so forth. So all the symbols that are in, in religion, and there's lots and lots of them, they take them to be literal. And he's upset that they don't get the difference between them, okay? And, I mean, this is a huge debate. It, it always has been a huge debate, right? Even during the time that he's writing, there was a debate in the Catholic Church about whether communion, bread, and wine physically change into human flesh and blood when you eat it. Uh, during the Inquisition, you'd get put to death if you said that that was just a metaphor. I mean, nowadays we have science. We can examine this context of someone's stomach and, and we know that the bread is not actually turning into flesh. But this is the, the kind of issue that would have dri uh, driven high crazy, that they don't understand the difference between these. Okay, so he's really sad about this. He thinks that they are, they're missing out on the majesty of God because, you know, no matter how big you make these symbols, they're still not going to be as good as the reality. Um, you know, like, it's, for example, the Bible describes heaven, the streets being paved with gold, and you always get some wise guy who says, well, you know, what do you need gold for in heaven? What do you need streets for in heaven? But we understand that this is just a metaphor to show you that it's the reality is better than you can possibly imagine. Um, but they're not getting this. I mean, they basically, their God is like a giant king on a throne. I mean, they, they can't tell the difference. 
And he's sad for them because he realizes they'll they'll never get this higher level joy and ecstasy. I mean, all they're going to do is be able to follow rules and be worried about being punished by this magical giant who will slam dunk them. Okay. And so, I mean, they're... For them, religion becomes this cold, harsh thing, right? Kind of like the parochial school nuns going around whacking everybody with the ruler. So he's going to decide to go back to his island. And Absol is going to go with him because we know Absol is really into this higher level spiritual stuff as well. But Solomon stays back to run the kingdom according to the laws because he understands the people have weak minds. This is the best that you can do for them. Okay, and... we see the number of people who have weak minds is way more than the the people don't. Only one one guy goes back to the island with high. Okay. And so this is validating the claims of people like Al-Ghazali and Ibn Hanbal, who are the opponents of the rationalists who say, you know, look, um, we need religious laws and rituals. You have to pe- tell people what to do, what not to do, and so forth. But he's also validating the rationalists, saying that, yeah, but people who can reach this higher level on their own, they shouldn't be held to the same standards as the riffraff. If this sounds very elitist, um, it surely is. Uh, but this is uh, basically the, the views of the philosophers that he is validating. Well, as we said, Hai ibn Yaqdan would be one of the most popular Arabic works translated into European languages. Partially, this is due to the location, right? Al-Andalus was part of Europe, and it was the gateway for much Islamic scholarship into Europe. So it explains why it has a better chance of being disseminated than, say, something written in Baghdad. Uh, One of the key milestones was the translation of this book into Latin in the year 1671 at Oxford. And the title was Philosophus Autodidactus, which means the self-taught philosopher. And this was the key message that they took from it, um, how the human mind could teach itself based on observation. And this is really more in the the first half of the book than um, what we've seen as the the spiritual, metaphysical stuff that uh, Ibn Tufayl was really going for. And this became a huge debate in philosophy of the Enlightenment. So we know, for example, Descartes, he thought that the human mind had some innate ideas. You were born knowing certain things. But uh, Locke, John Locke, he said that the mind was tabula rasa. It was a blank slate. And Locke is really seen as the pioneer of the Enlightenment concept of the self, which is a big component of the Enlightenment. Uh, Previously, right, Christian theologians saw the human as having inherent characteristics. We were inherently sinful, um, at least since the time of Adam. And this is still a big concept, particularly like in evangelical theology. We are by nature sinful, but we still get punished for it anyway. Um, Therefore, we need salvation. I mean, I can remember I had a preacher one time talking about his newborn daughter who was less than a week old. 
but how she was sinful. You could see it in her. You could see the sin in her, even nice little kid. Um, so I think maybe he was being kept up with crying all night long, and this was sort of his uh, venting frustration. But anyway, um, the idea of original sin never caught on in Islam, by the way, uh, the way that it did in Christianity. Um, but even we can see in, in this book, in Hai Ibn Yaqthan, even though there's no original sin, most people are going to get caught up in lustful thinking anyway, and they need rules and regulations to keep them straight. The big development in the uh, Enlightenment, and this is one that Locke is uh, given a lot of credit for, is that a person is born innocent, neutral. They're going to be shaped by their environment. They're not born on the road to hell the way that um, traditional Christian philosophy said. Okay, And so Hay ibn Yaqdan really supports Locke's theory because, of course, the main character starts off knowing nothing. He has to learn everything by observation and experimentation. Um, and so Locke himself, he was at Oxford uh, about the time that this was translated. And he published in the same journal uh, in which it was uh, translated. So it's assumed, and I say assumed in quotes because we don't know, but it is assumed and probably fairly likely that John Locke was familiar with Hai Ibn Yaqdan and it seems to have influenced him. Ironically enough, perhaps surprisingly, another group that was very much influenced by this book, and we know this for sure, were the Quakers, who were a, a bigger group in the 1600s than they are today. I mean, we don't hear as much about, we don't hear a lot about them today. Um, but the key belief of the Quakers is the inner light. And this is the idea that, for them, it's Christ working directly on the soul without the aids of intermediaries. And this is why they reject official clergy and official rituals, that we have this inner light and um, God speaks directly to us. And so they very much took to this book um, because uh, Hai Ibn Yaqdan was seen as an example of this. And so the first English translation was three years after the Latin translation, and this was in the year 1674 by George Keith, who was one of the leaders of the Quaker movement at the time. And he cited Hai Ibn Yaqdan as a perfect example of the inner light. Okay, so this is another influence that it had. Um, it's been fairly well proven by scholars that Dante read this book, and so, um, you know, you can remember High having these visions in which he sees the glory of heaven and the horror of hell. So you kind of see the, the parallel to Dante there. And so it's, it's obvious that this book was well known and in different parts of it influenced uh, different people. Now, unfortunately, the influence in the Muslim world was less than it was in Europe. And this is because, as we said, Muslim Spain was slowly losing territory in the Christian conquest. A very, very violent conquest, but it's a very slow one. And it, it will go on until 1492, of course, the final defeat of the Muslims in Spain. But what happens is, as this conflict becomes um, hotter and hotter and becomes uh, much more um, vicious... 
is that both sides on the fight become extremely strict indoctrinary in their views of religion. We've seen this with the El Mawahids. Uh, it's going to get more and more so, uh, and it's not a coincidence on the other side why we get an inquisition in Spain. Um, this is where they become very uh, religiously zealous. And so the appeal of something like Hai Ibn Yaqthan, uh, unfortunately, is not going to increase. And as we said, really, the idea of the rationalism is really going to die out. This, the Al-Ghazali view that basically spiritual and rational are separate and there are just some things you, you can't know by science and logic that is eventually going to win out, and it's almost pretty much universally you know, accepted in religious circles uh, today. But anyway, the influence continues to li live on even after Muslim Spain was gone, and in the greatest educational centers in Europe, there was still great respect for this Islamic classic, so it continues to be one of the most influential Muslim writings of the Middle Ages. So we thank you for staying with us for this study of uh, the classic book, Hai Ibn Yaqthan by Ibn Tufail, and we recommend it to you. But in any case, thank you very much for being with us. We look forward to seeing you again in the future. Shukran Jazeelan. Wa ma salama.